newest episode of Entertainment Weekly, your guide to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and awesome. I'm Darren Franich, and with me, as always, by the magic of Telegraph, is Entertainment Weekly's Jeff Jensen. Very good, Jeff. Uh, so, you know, as we said last week, uh, we're going we're gonna to continue our conversation about The Dark Knight Rises today. Uh, you know, we recorded our, our, our last podcast last Thursday before the horrible shooting in Colorado. And I, I think that, you know, it's fair to say that we both sort of feel... You know, it's 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 a, it's a different situation now, and there's almost kind of this question of you know, can we still sort of talk about uh, the Dark Knight Rises? You know, the way we usually talk about movies like this. I mean, I, I know that I sort of have struggled with that. You know, do you kind of feel that way? Oh, totally. I um, one of the things I was assigned to do this past weekend was basically write a long post at ew.com about you know, about what happens in the movie, the things that happen at the end of the movie, my thoughts and feelings about how this movie, how the trilogy was brought to a conclusion and the kind of big picture thoughts on what it tells us about Batman and heroism and our culture and all those kinds of things. And, you know, we, we, uh, we established this editorial plan more than a week ago. And so to actually now come to that post on Saturday morning, living in a world in which this this horrible catastrophe has occurred and the movie is now is inextricably bound up in that and you know i think that you, you know we we want to talk about that and our thoughts are, are 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 on that our emotions are engaged by that and like you know i found it really difficult to to write that piece it was like do i have permission to have fun with this movie can i can i do i am i allowed to engage readers in in, in this way and yeah and, it, yeah i mean it was it was an interesting thing to wrestle with of course i clearly kind of can, uh, did it you know i i posted out there but there was an acknowledgement of the whole thing at the beginning of the piece and i just kind of felt like um like you know my my heart and my mind can be thinking about these issues associated with the film and this tragedy but but we can we we can and we should also continue talking about the movie and not letting anything kind of stop us in that regard. Yeah, I th- I think you're exactly right. I mean, it, it goes without saying that you know it, it's a, a, any sort of violence like that is just a, a complete obscenity. But yeah, I, I think that you know at the at the same time it it feels it feels like it would be sort of wrong to just not address the movie, especially considering you know that this is a movie that you know seems to have a lot to really you know talk about. Um, it, it, it feels like it would be wrong to just totally kind of put that conversation aside. So I, I think, you know, why don't we kind of like go forward, we'll talk about the movie, you know, there's, it, it's, on, on one hand it is, you know, it, it, it's a popcorn film and maybe it feels sort of wrong to talk about something like that when something so awful has happened, but at the same time, I mean, I think that, you know, movies are sort of intended to, in some respects, carry us away and in some respects to hold up a mirror to our society and so I, I think it's, I think that we, we should definitely, you know, discuss this movie as as if as as if it, you know, as if we we've discussed all other movies like it. Does that that sound about right to you, man? Sounds about right. And one and so let's 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 get into that with one huge warning to our listeners um, at the same warning that we gave them last week, which is that. Um, uh, you know, we're we're going to spoil things. So if you haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises, um, just 
stop listening now. Yeah, yeah. I'm holding up a checklist of every major important plot point of the last half hour, and we are going to steadily spoil every single one of those. So please, please do not listen to this if you value being surprised by this movie. If, if you're like me, then you've spent the last year sort of like, you know, keeping your fingers in your ears and not reading anything on the internet a, a, about this movie. So please don't let us be the ones who spoil it for you. <laughs> Let's be clear about this, too. We're, um, I don't know about you, Darren, I've never been a big spoiler. Like, look at me, I'm a know-it-all, I know something that you don't, and I want to, like, you know, like, uh, this is not about spoiling a story. The thing about the, the, the genius of this movie is that the, the, the twists and revelations at the end are very much, you, you can't talk about the meanings of this movie and the larger themes of the franchise and the larger story that Nolan has told without talking about where Batman and Bruce Wayne lands in his journey. You well, just can't. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even with regards to the, the, the film's villains and, you know, their sort of overall role in this particular socio-political atmosphere that Nolan creates, I mean, so much of that you think it's one way and then just really in the last 20 minutes to half hour there's such a radical shift in that and on one hand it maybe makes our understanding of the movie more more complex on the other hand it maybe makes its ultimate meaning a, a little bit fuzzier in a way that I'd be, I, I'd be intrigued to see if you think that that was intentional or not but yeah, uh, yeah I mean it, it, it feels to me like it, it's, it's difficult if not impossible to address a lot of what's going on in this movie without just getting right out there with what happens in the final few moments so why don't we just dive right into that then uh, Jeff, I, I like that uh, one thing that you talked about in your post over the weekend um, was this whole kind of notion of heroism and this notion that, you know, all of these movies really kind of come out of that scene in Batman Begins where Bruce Wayne, you know, discusses how he wants to become a, a legend, you know, to really inspire people and not just single-handedly take down the entire criminal enterprise by himself. If, now, if I recall our conversation from last week, you sounded like you kind of really enjoyed the fact that it ends right there with Joseph Gordon-Levitt sort of, you know, ascending, you know, like yet yet another rise in, in, in a movie called The Dark Knight Rises. How do you kind of, you know, do, do you kind of feel like that sort of wraps up the movie in a way that's really satisfying for you? Yeah, I, I did. I really like that beat. I love the way it was staged. It's not. It's it's hard not to be kind of caught up in that moment. I mean, the way that it's all filmed, the cinematography, the 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 the, the framing, the push in. Like there is something very kind of triumphant and hopeful about the whole thing. Um, you know, and that the, the mantle has been passed, and Batman lives, and. Um, you know, Batman has sort of, you know, the, the cultural symbol of Batman has been redeemed and uh, through the events of The Dark Knight Rises. And uh, he once again kind of stands for this symbol, symbolic representation of, of hope, of justice, of perseverance, of incorruptibility, um, even when, you know, our culture or certain circumstances might convince us that the world is otherwise. And so the idea that this is going to continue... I thought it was really, really cool. Um, I think what's interesting about the movie, though, the more that I think about it, the more I kind of wonder that there's a lot of messages in the movie that suggest that the movie is equally ambivalent and critical of the whole enterprise that is Batman. Um, I don't think that the movie ever lets 
Bruce Wayne off the hook on the concept of two things. One is that he's a vigilante, and this is a this is sort of like a, a necessary evil, if you will. It's a it's a circumstantial fix to a, a certain kind of pro, uh, problem in, in the culture and in Gotham. But like, do we really want people deciding that they're above the law and taking the law into their own hands and um, forcing their will upon the world? And even if um, that is sort of good, even if they want the greater good for people, I mean. Um, this sort of philosophical conversation is threaded throughout the movies and it was explored through a variety of characters, whether it be the good guy vigilante that is Batman or the toxic, you know, terrorists that are like characters like the Joker or Bane, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And separately, I'm really galvanized. uh, Not galvanized. I hate that word. I use it a lot. But (laughs) I was really... I want to say that the the perspective of the movie is Batman is a great idea for a symbol, but a cultural symbol, but really tricky and complicated to to, to live out. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the vigilante thing, but then there's the fact that it's embodied and created by this guy named Bruce Wayne, who is clearly enslaved to these sort of massive childhood issues and traumas that fill him with anger and rage and I think that the movie is very honest and I think kind of provocative in the sense of like I was kind of left wondering yeah Batman is a good idea but maybe Bruce Wayne isn't the best guy to play that role well, and, and it's interesting because this is really the movie. I believe that Christopher Nolan pointed this out in one of your interviews with him. That you know, this is one of the movies where you really, uh, you really understand that Bruce Wayne is a billionaire, and and that's called out several times. I mean, I think that you know, Selena Kyle sort of directly says, you know, Bruce Wayne, you and your friends, and you and the quote unquote like you know one percent have been sort of living at, at this tier. And it's interesting that. You know, that, that certainly is, I think, always one of the interesting problems of the character is that, you know, on one hand, he is this sort of aspirational hero. He, he has no superpowers. He, you know, there's sort of this dream that anyone could be Batman. The flip side of that, of course, is that, well, you know, n- not everyone has, has a mansion constructed right over a cave filled with, you know, elaborate futuristic technology. And, you know, that, you know, not everyone has, the, you know, the little leg brace that magically heals your uh, broken <laughs> limbs. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting that it almost seems to me as if this character of, of, of John Blake, who in, in some respects echoes Dick Grayson, but it, 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 it almost seems like what if you took Dick Grayson but removed even the sort of fantastical sense of his origin story, you know? He, he's not from the circus anymore. He's just kind of one more kid who rose up from the streets in a, in a way. It feels like, you know, in a movie that interestingly discusses without necessarily focusing on, you know, contemporary socioeconomic issues. It feels like Blake is really almost set up as, you know, the proletarian alternative to the bourgeois Bruce Wayne, which is, sure. which is, yeah. which, which, which is hopefully the, the start and end of our Marxist uh, discussion for the day. <laughs> well, what I, what I really agree with you is that there, I, I have thought about many of the themes that you've just sketched there. And the idea that I was kind of left with and, and thinking about, wondering about, is that if the movie is basically saying that if we're going to have a guy like Batman in our culture, um, if, if we're going to have a guy like, you know, you know if we're going to have a, a vigilante like this, 
it's better that he be a guy like like John Blake as opposed to Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne is just way too loaded, way too you know, even though this sort of billionaire bourgeois kind of like thing that we're talking about here is a is a role, is a part that Bruce Wayne was playing, you know, um, as I kind of said uh, in other places, I think that Bruce Wayne, even, even Bruce Wayne wanted that guy to die. And I think it was interesting that he was willing at the end of the movie to allow this Bruce Wayne, you know, the, 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 the wastrel billionaire, the selfish rich guy who only lives for himself, he allowed him to essentially be counted among Bane's victims, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he had no problem with sort of like just like destroying and blowing up that identity because that was a worthless bad guy in his opinion. But John Blake, I got the sense that like in this, the mantle being passed, the movies were, were also saying that John Blake is a better kind of hero um, to be wearing that mask. He's a man of the people. And he's, he, 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 he has some, some damaged past, but he's not maybe as, as loaded or um, painful as, as Bruce Wayne. Uh, I mean, you get the sense that he's just very kind of focused on this one issue, which is justice and fairness and looking out for the little guy, people like himself, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, so, yeah, I thought, I, thought that was, I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I, I was more kind of interested thematically kind of in the idea of like these are all really cool issues i just kind of like was was taken by the notion that it was just like spiritually unhealthy for bruce wayne to be batman (laughs) it was emotionally uh, i was really touched by the uh, this is alfred's like like argument to bruce like this is no life for you to live like um, I love you like a son. I want to see you be healthy. I want you to see you live a real life. This is not a real life. And the more you keep on doing this, the more enslaved you are to this horrible past that you just you kind of need to make a break from and move on. I think one of the most radical choices that is presented in the movie um, is just the simple fact of the implication that Bruce Wayne leaves Gotham City. Like and and puts it behind him and goes on the happily ever after of the eternal European vacation. Well, and uh, and and you know what you're bringing up. Uh, this is where uh, I have to play, uh, you know, Team Grumpy here for a second. Uh, I I was sort of so taken by the notion of Batman's sacrifice, and, and and you know, really, I think central to this whole trilogy is the notion of, you know, here is a guy who left behind just the the worst city on the face of the planet. I mean, Gotham, just so well-established in this series as every kind of nightmare you've ever had about the modern American metropolis mixed in with some of Fritz Lang's metropolis, just for fun. And it, 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 it there's something almost... It, it, it muddles the meaning a, a little bit for me that not only would he sort of fake his own death and pass the mantle on to someone else, but that he would just leave Gotham completely. I mean, it's almost this weird sort of like, you know, he, he's off to live the kind of continental to catch a thief lifestyle in, in, in Italy with, uh, you know, his, his, his lovely professional thief girlfriend. I, <laughs> I, I, I sort of, I mean, on one hand... You know, I, I, I do think that if you're going to give Batman a happy ending, then, you know, that that is certainly not something that's over the top, you know? Like, that's that's not an ending that kind of goes out of its way to establish that Bruce Wayne will be happy forever after. But it still felt a little bit like, you know, here's a guy where I, I think that one of the things that is maybe 
admirable about Batman, and I, I sort of hesitate to use that with, with a fictional character, but it's something that has always struck me as a fan of him from the comic books through all the movies, is this notion that, you know, yes, he was given so much and, you know, had so much taken away from him, but he was ultimately very self-sacrificing in a way. And it, it almost feels like it adds this sort of slight air of dilettantism to it, where it's kind of like, well, okay, now, now Bruce, you know, you've, you've established a good, solid brand. Time to kind of pass that on to the next guy and then, you know, go, go and enjoy Florence for a while. I, that, that, was, that was sort of my takeaway from that, Jeff. Yeah, I disagree. I think it actually, the more I think about it, um, the more provocative. Um, it, it, I don't feel like... I kind of feel like the, the the choice he ultimately makes to not make uh, the sacrifice uh, of, of 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 going the whole way and blowing up with the bomb at the end is really intriguing and provocative in terms of this this notion of heroism. I was I was I was thinking about this um, in 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 this way, which is, and I'm losing the thread of what I was about to say. So this is me stalling, waiting for the thought to kind of come back. <laughs> stall, and, stall, stall, stall. Yeah, right, right. Um, which is that um, this notion that heroic sacrifice is all about are you willing to put your, lay your life on the line? And, you know, there was, there was this line earlier in the movie where Catwoman is just basically tell him, telling him, like, come on, run away with me. Like, let's just put, you know, let, let Bane have the city and... Let's just move on. I mean, the, 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 you've given this city so much. Like, you know, you don't have to give them anything more. And, you know, Batman has that line, you know, basically that, you know, he hasn't given them everything. Not yet, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of really kind of leading us to this place, uh, making us think that we're, 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 we're headed toward this sacrifice. This, this, he's going to put his life on the line and he's going to give it all up for this city, and, and that maybe he wants to die, but he's willing to die. So to learn at the end that he was unwilling to do that, that we learn in this revelation at the end that he took the time somehow amid all of this to make sure that the autopilot worked, <laughs> and that at some point during that flight out to sea with the nuclear bomb, he chose to bail on this thing so he can live a life. It's like, I'm willing to save you, but I'm not willing to die for you. And my big point that I'm coming, up, uh, I'm coming to is this, is that I wonder if this is the provocative meaning of, 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 of the subversive meanings of this movie, which is that, like, yes, I want to, you know, like, I'm willing to die for my country or I'm willing to die for a cause, but that cause better be good. That society better be worth dying for. And the question I have is, is Bruce making a judgment about Gotham at the end, which is, like, why do I have to die for this place? Like, mm -hmm. this place is corrupt. It's rotten. And uh, it doesn't deserve, like, um, my death. I will fight tooth and nail to protect it and defend it. And look, I am saving the day. I am getting this bomb out of here. So look, I am saving you. Why do I have to die for you? That makes no sense. <laughs> like, why, like, why must I die for you? So without any sort of the highfalutin kind of like blah, 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 I just put to this. Like, I'm just on a basic level. It's just kind of like, well, I don't have to die. Like, why, why do I have to die? No, I guess I can get out of this. I, 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 I do think that you're hitting on one thing, Jeff. But I, I guess that 
what you're bringing up in turn for me brings up only more questions because what you're describing is actually a moment that I think I, I would have loved to have seen or I, I, would have, I would have loved to have understood as drama. I mean, it almost seems like what you're describing is maybe the sort of dramatic shift in Bruce Wayne's life. I mean, you know, to the extent that the first movie was very much about his sort of invention as Batman and the second movie was really kind of about his reinvention when he realized that, you know, to a certain extent his legend would need to be twisted in the service to another legend, to, to Harvey Dent and to this sort of notion of perfection and, and working within the law. I, I feel like, you know, the fact that not only do we not get that moment with him, but it's also, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's constructed as this sort of twist where it's like, aha, th there was autopilot all along. And it, it just, it feels to me like if that is what they were going for, then to me, they left a lot of interesting drama on the table in the service to one last fun little twist. And I, 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 I sort of, I sort of wonder, you know, if if the movie would have held together a little bit more, had there been more to that final decision. It may have honestly just come down to the fact that you know I thought Anne Hathaway was great in the movie, and I really felt like she kind of brought something out of Christian Bale that you know even uh, the Rachel Dawes character never really brought out. But she's so oddly constructed in the film and, and so absent for a lot of it that, you know, it's not like he's choosing to live to be with her, even though that is sort of his consolation prize to get to be with a utterly beautiful, very wealthy, you know, identity scrubbed thief for the rest of his life. It just, it, it I, I, I don't know. I, I sort of, I hear what you're saying, but it, it, I also wonder if you know, does it ultimately just kind of come down to there had to be that one last twist? And many part of it no, is... I, I don't think so, because I think it really kind of... Well, I mean, I see your point. I totally see your point. I think that there is some value in what you're saying. It does feel like, it, you know, I can, I can totally make an argument and buy into the idea of, like, you know, someone along the way saying, wow, that was kind of a downer. <laughs> um, like, is there any way he could somehow live... And, right, uh, well, and, 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 and you know, and, and again, I, I'm only kind of being being cruel to be kind here because one thing that I, I really enjoy about this movie is the fact that you know Nolan really wanted to make a, a a a Dickensian superhero epic, which just as sort of an ambition, whether achieved or not, I think is a really sort of thrilling idea for for a movie. Um, but you know, when you when you're going to out, outright quote a tale of two cities, which has maybe the best kind of last lines and, and the, the best ending of any you know novel that we all were forced to read in high school, it feels like you know, I mean, Sidney Sidney Carton, you know, when when he goes to die, his sacrifice has resonated through the ages, and it just it feels like. But you know, again, maybe this is what you're you're getting at that somehow the movie is constructed more as a thoughtful deconstruction or, or, or corollary to that notion of sacrifice. I was also raised Catholic, so maybe I'm just like really sort of focused on this whole notion of, of sacrifice as something that, you know, that's how you should end the movie. <laughs> no, well, and, and, and we could talk more about, the, 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 you know, the Dark Knight cycle as deconstruction of heroic archetype in a second. But I just kind of, you know, the reason why I accept um, Bruce's decision at the end of the movie is that I think that the movie's and these are very big, complicated, muddled, messy, sometimes delightfully so movies. So it's kind of like to say that there is a clear story arc or character arc is kind of, you know, not, not terribly accurate because it's not quite easy to see. But I was just reflecting on the other day about how we have two images, in, you know, that are 
in, in the movie, in, in the trilogy that are sort of like, you know, that, that bracket the whole series. You know, when Batman begins, young Bruce falls down into the pit um, in his parents' backyard, and he finds the cave with the bats, and his, and his father descends on a rope and, like, helps him up and says, don't be afraid. Um, which ends up being like um, his final word, you know, his final words to Bruce when he ends up getting killed, and Bruce gets his leg broken and all this kind of stuff, and he goes home, and, and Dad fixes him. But from this very, you know, you know, we have this sort of scene in the, in, in the beginning of the trilogy of this boy that is sort of defined by this this fall into a pit, and he's basically been told that fear is a bad thing. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And like. This is sort of like mirrored at the end of the movie and in Rises where, once again, Bruce Wayne gets thrown into a pit, that, that prison in where, like India somewhere or something, you know, the worst prison in the world. But instead of anyone coming down and saving him, um, he, he has to sort of like crawl out of it himself. And I think that there's something about it where crawling out of the pit on his own, this sort of like kind of like fearless this guy who's been taught to who sort of like be, be detached and not engage his fear um, and to be fearless kind of like regains his humanity somehow by crawling out of the pit himself. Mm-hmm. And so the decision at the end that he's going to choose life and, 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 and not like, uh, and not, not make that sort of like sacrificial end. I don't know. It all feels right to me like it feels like the character arc of a guy who sort of like lost his humanity and his soul at a very early age and was taught maybe some questionable things about what it means you know about about fear and whether that's a good or bad thing and at the end kind of regains some through a proper perspective and and this is just really silly what i'm talking about isn't it darren no 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 not at all i'm 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 very on board with this jeff yeah, I'm kind of, it's kind of murky in my head. But well, like, well, well, no, but, uh, but, but you know, one thing that, that, that you're bringing up that I actually think is very interesting, and I, I wanted to sort of ask you this with regards to the overall uh, setup of, of the moral atmosphere of the movie, because, you know, what you're sort of describing, which I like a lot, is this notion that, you know, his, his rise in the movie, the, the, the very literal rise out of that pit, is almost intended as a direct response to the rise way back in, 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 in the first movie, which I, I, I think itself was sort of intended to echo a sequence from um, The Dark Knight Returns, that, the, the sort of Frank Miller classic about the much yeah. older Batman. What, now, what I found interesting about rises is that this whole time we're sort of being led to understand that Bane is some sort of almost bizarro Batman, you know, to to the same extent that, you know, when we believe that it's Bane who is the child who climbed out of the well, that when Batman is doing that, it, it seemed to me like it was really literalizing that, that we were literally sort of seeing, you know, here's, here is, you know, Bane, an orphan who was raised in a, in a pit of hell and was toughened up, you know, had, had no family, then became the villain that, you know, we we all know and love with I think I think you might have described it as you know the 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 voice of of, of Goldfinger uh, behind you know a, a massive muscle, but that is completely thrown out the window when it turns out that actually the main villain and another sort of orphan figure in the movie was actually Talia Al Ghul, and I I, I was sort of wondering I mean, you know it, it's so hard to tell because and here again I I sort of. 
I, I'm concerned that they sacrificed a lot of interesting drama for the sake of a good twist because I sort of would have loved to have seen more of her and, and more sort of understood more of why she was so villainous or what her kind of exact role in in, in the movie was. But I, I'm, I'm sort of taken by the fact that she's almost like, you know, she is a vision of what Batman could have been if you know, following what you're describing, he hadn't kind of made this choice for life. I mean, her, her last moments are her, you know, to the death seeking vengeance for her father, which to a certain extent you could argue that Batman's whole mission is a kind of vengeance for his own father. And I, right. I, I, I sort of wonder if, is she sort of being set up in this very twisted maze way as kind of, here's, here's, here's the example of what would happen to you, Bruce, if you decided to go completely nihilistic and sacrifice yourself. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think in, in, in Talia, he sees Bruce Wayne. He sees the nightmare version of Bruce Wayne forever and ever sort of locked in this sort of like, th that woman is, is going to forever be defined by like, you know, um, this fury, this anger, this grief that's never going to be assuaged. And so she's going to like, like, you know, she, she feels her father's burden um, uh, legacy as sort of like a, a privilege, but a burden. And, uh, and she's just forever going to be driven by this mad cause and, and, and her own anger and blah, blah, blah issues. Right. Mm -hmm. So Talia is like, is, is in, in Talia, Bruce sees Bruce Wayne. In Bane, I think that Bruce sees Batman. You know, like, I think that he sees kind of like, you know, this sort of like larger-than-life hideous iconic monster that, that doesn't mean anything, is just brutal and brutalizing and, uh, and scary and, uh, and sees the limitations of this and the, and the, the, the shortcomings of the symbol that he's created to represent. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and you know, there's even something to the, to the fact that when we first are introduced to Bane, there's, there's that focus on the mask. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, CIA agent Carchetti first describes him as the man in the mask. And then I, I believe he actually has a line where he says, before I started wearing the mask, no one really paid attention to me. I, I think he says that in that, in, that, in, in that first sequence on the plane. And so it feels like we're set up right from the start to understand that there's there's something about this mask and there's something about his sort of larger than life iconography, quite literally. I mean, God only knows what diet Tom Hardy was on to uh, achieve the, the, the girth he did for this movie. I mean, I, I even think there's something to the fact that, like, you know, his, his voice is like the kind of weird flip side of Batman's voice. You know, it's not gravelly at all. It's very, you know, you know, there's this weird, like, you know, electronic sense. I mean, it almost reminds me of how in the Transformers movies, Optimus Prime's voice seems to be kind of coming from everywhere at once. You know, it's it's such, a, it's such an interesting, and and again, I I actually really. Um I'm actually especially intrigued by this notion you're putting forth that Bane and, and Talia are both sort of like, you know, very specific mirrorings of each side of Bruce's personality, especially because, you know, Miranda Tate is a complete invention of a sort of, you know, wealthy board member of Wayne Enterprises, which is exactly what Bruce Wayne is. I mean, you know, Br Bruce is play acting at, at being Bruce whenever we see him, and that's established very early on. I, 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 I feel like... All these ideas are very interesting. And again, Jeff, my one problem with it is that 
the execution of it, at least with regards to how it kind of wrapped up, just felt a little bit muddled to me. But I, I sort of wonder if the fact that it's muddled is part of the reason why these movies are so effective. You know, it feels like there's this kind of cocktail of different topical notions and different, you know, readings on Batman all kind of thrown together and everyone can sort of walk away with their own perspective on it. I mean, it's... it's, it's yeah, I, I, think, I think that what doesn't serve the movie well is that there, there definitely feels to be, uh, feels like a little bit of a, a clunky plotting. You know, like, I don't expect... I love the fact that the movie is messy with ideas. Um, and I like the idea that the, the movie is ultimately leaving these ideas for us to put together. But I think that, that I wish that... Um, I wish that these ideas were expressed through a plot that was a, felt a little bit more organic and a little bit more naturally flowing. Like... Um, uh, this is not my line, but it's a, but it's a, it was an observation made by um, a, a comic book writer and artist named Scott McCloud on Twitter this weekend who said that he felt like The Dark Knight was a story, and this was good, but, but, the, but Rises was a plot adorned with interesting characters to think about. And, um, and, and, and I, I, I agree, and there, there's some things in the movie that... that that in the moment bugged me, and look, looking back on it, kind of bugged me. And just the way that they happen, it was as if the movie was just like you know, the movie was after uh, themes and ideas and characters, and the plot was just the way in which you know that, that people were moved to where the where the, the, the author ultimately needed them to be. So, for example, one of my least favorite things in the movie is the way that like. Like Batman just so easily finds Bane, mm -hmm. you know. Like mm -hmm. so he, meets, he meets Catwoman in the subway tunnels, and Catwoman says, "Yeah, come on, I'll take him down, down to you." And like, <laughs> I felt like it should have been a little harder than that, you know. But, um, like, you know, bad guys in movies and superhero movies do a really, really good job of hiding, and it, Bane seemed rather ridiculously easy to find, and it just kind of felt like, okay, Catwoman was like. I'm going to bring you down to Bane, and, and now you shall fight. Yeah. And then we just have this sort of like, um, Lisa, Lisa Schwartzbaum like at our website this week and kind of criticized this, this sequence, and I kind of agree. I mean, it's like one of the most boring fights in all of the Batman movies. Um, it just kind of feels like, literally, like they put him in a steel cage, and, it's, and now you shall have a fight scene. And it was just brutal and long and kind of boring, boring and ultimately leading to the back, the back crack. Um, uh, yeah, but, well, uh, and you know, it's funny, um, uh, our, our colleague uh, Jeff Lebrecht sort of pointed out to me that the interesting thing is that you realize that in the earlier Nolan movies, Batman is not a very, there's not much in the ways of physical battling with his supervillains, you know? I mean, like, Scarecrow is certainly much more about the, the kind of mental and neurotic side. Uh, you know, the Joker, you know, he, you know, he almost kind of jokes with Batman at the end of The Dark Knight. Like, you know what, did, did you think that beating me up was really going to, like, you know, get you anywhere? And it's funny that, yeah, with Bane, it is just such a, you know, Rocky Four, you know, knockdown, drag-out fight, which then leads to, I, I, I think, if, if, talking about awkward plotting, apparently the lesson that Batman learned was you got to punch Bane a little harder. That, that seems to be sort of like, you know, the, the way that he beats him in the end is like, no, 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 Batman. Like, don't punch him softly. Punch him really hard. That's, that's the way, to, that's the way to, to, to take this guy down. And but, the, the other clunky plotting that people are pointing out, but honestly... 
I don't hold this against the movie. I mean, that, that's what I kind of, I, I liked it enough and I kind of roll with stuff like this enough that I don't hold it against the movie. But I can't deny that, like, okay, so he climbs out of the pit in India or wherever he is, <laughs> and, and then how does he get back to, into Gotham? Like, like, is there, you know, I, here's how I rationalize it in my head. Uh, Bruce Wayne is a very wealthy man who has resources all across the country, a world, and I kind of feel like it's probably not hard for him to um, easily get on a plane back to the States. Fine. Um, how did he get back into Gotham? I, 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 I don't know, but that's an example of the kind of plotting we're talking about where it was just like, the movie needs him to be in this place. The movie needs this to happen. So we're not really going to work hard at setting it up properly. We're just going to put him here. Yeah. And then we, we need to get him over here. And it's just the way that these things are going to go. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and, you know, I would just throw in for my two cents, uh, you know, the, the, the single uh, least believable element of the plot is when Gordon finds Bane downstairs in the sewers, for some reason still has the, the, the hyper-confessional speech about the truth of Harvey Dent inside of his trench coat. Bane just kind of like pulls that out and says, oh, this is, this is interesting. This could be very useful in my, you know, propaganda plan to turn Gotham against Commissioner Gordon. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. You know, I, I, there was a great article uh, written over at, at the New Yorker uh, over the weekend by James Verini, who sort of was arguing that, or just pointing out that there's there's a lot of video game ness to how Christopher Nolan puts his movies together, and with with this movie much more so than Dark Knight, you really kind of had that sense of certain elements of the plot were almost like these these cinematics that happen in video games between the exciting parts when you know just characters sort of talk and weird plot twists happen, and then we're kind of into the next exciting thing. And I think that you've really kind of nailed on that too. There was a sense that a lot of this movie happened because Batman had to be there at that specific moment or because Catwoman had to react in just that way. And it did, it, it feels like a lot of interesting ideas that maybe single, you know, could have been explored much more in depth, but instead were all thrown together into a cocktail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 I wanted to toss out a couple other ideas to talk about, which is um, kind of, uh, to uh, to revisit an earlier topic of conversation, let's talk about again the, the ending with Bruce um, uh, in, in Europe and 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 seeing Alfred and, and and one of the most interesting theories that I've been uh, seeing out there about the ending. So just to kind of like put this in perspective as context and set this up, earlier in the movie we hear this speech from Alfred to Bruce, in which Alfred. Um, paints this happily ever after um, uh, ending for Bruce. And he tells, he tells Bruce that I always wanted this ending for you. I wanted you to, to put this city behind you. I wanted you to stop this madness. I wanted you to go out and fall in love and have a life. And I always had this dream. You know, every summer I go on vacation and I go to this cafe in Florence. And I always imagined that, you know, you, you've disappeared from the world. But I'll go to this cafe in Florence and I'll sit down and I'll pour myself a glass of wine. And I'll look over at another table and there you would be just sitting there. And we would just say nothing. We would acknowledge each other. But I would know that you, that you made it, that you're okay, you know. And that's all I want in life. And so, um, and that's all I want for you. And so, 
at the end of the movie, we get exactly that moment. Alfred goes on vacation. Uh, he goes to that, that restaurant in Florence. He looks over at the table, and there's Christian Bale, as, you know, at Bruce Wayne and, and Selena Kyle, and they toast each other, and that's it. And it's a very affecting moment, pretty transparent. From the moment Alfred told us that story <laughs> in the middle of the movie, I know exactly where the movie was headed. So, um, but, like, still, it was very affecting. Mm-hmm. Um, however... However, there is a theory out there, Darren, that says that Bruce did die. Batman did die. Bruce Wayne did die aboard the Bat when the nuclear bomb blew up. And that ending was a dream. That's Alfred's dream. (laughs) And that, like, you know, because... You know, uh, the, the flaw in this is that everyone who theorizes this ignores or never mentions the fact or forgets the fact that you get that little moment at the end where Lucius Fox is told that... Um, uh, the autopilot! Uh, he fixed the, the autopilot! autopilot. <laughs> right. But, like, um, but, but this is gaining some traction. I noticed that it was actually actively debated on our message boards this week weekend. Um, people on Twitter have been talking about it. Like, was, did, did, was that for real? Or... Was that some kind of like inception dream twist? Well, you know, I'm I, I'm taken by that idea as I am taken by all uh, fan theories. I, I I don't know if you've seen that page on Reddit, Jeff, which is just filled with fan theories, like that all the babies in, in Rugrats were dead all along, or that Bruce <laughs> or that or, or that Bruce Wayne is actually a patient in Arkham Asylum. Here's nice. here's why. As much as I love that idea. And as, as much as I, I think that there was a way to accomplish that, I, I don't think it's true. There's that great shot of Alfred as, as he sits down at that Florentine cafe and looks, I think, straight towards the camera and smiles. And that, I mean, I, I, like, like looking at that, I was just like, oh, my God, please, like, st- like, like, cut to black now, cut to black now, cut to black now. And then he just, you go... A little bit too far, and then you see, you know, there's there's the shot of you know Bruce Wayne sitting pretty and Selena Kyle there, and oh, it almost interesting. So you would have cut it before you wouldn't have included the shot of Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle at the table. You would have just like had the shot of like Alfred, like like. Looking, smiling, and then leaving. I thought it was. I thought it was such a, a great sort of image, and you know, I want to say props to Michael Caine because I think he had a lot more to do in this movie and really just did so much with it. But there's just you know, he has, he has this little smile and he's staring right out at the camera. And to me, like that's the moment where you know you cut to black, or you know, e- even better, you know, you, you cut to John Blake in the in in, in the Batcave rising up, and you know, then you kind of get that sort of fun ambiguity that maybe is not ambiguity, but that nevertheless we can discuss as if it is ambiguity for the rest of time and just you know you, you, when you add in that that next shot it, it just felt it, it felt a little bit too much to me and uh, you know I, I, as much as I want to support you know theories about what is and isn't a dream I, I, I'm not sure that I can quite go along with that but so yeah. but, 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 but yes Jeff whenever Warner Brothers gives me a billion dollars to make my superhero trilogy. I guarantee I'm I, I'm going to end it with Michael Caine's smiling face. <laughs> but let me, um, you, let me ask you a question. Sure. Why Why doesn't Batman ever get to beat beat the bad guy at the end of the at, at the end of any of these Christopher Nolan movies? Have you ever noticed that? 
Batman never is the active agent in the villain's downfall. You're right, you're right. He has that great line to Ra's al Ghul at, at the end of Batman Begins, where it's, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm not going to save you. Um, right. But it's Jim Gordon who's the one who takes out the bottom of the train track and ultimately is responsible for stopping Ra's al Ghul from accomplishing his mission. Now, go to the Dark Knight. Dark Knight, uh, you know, we leave Joker essentially triumphant with him sort of like cackling away in the evening. And then, you know, Batman does sort of take down Harvey Dent, but it, it certainly is not intended as, as a remotely heroic moment. I mean, you know, he sort of outright basically turns himself into the villain in a way at, at, at the end of it all. And I, I think he even has that great line about how they failed Harvey. So it's a really sort of, I mean, a really kind of downer note to end a, a superhero movie on. Right, I mean, the Joker's the Joker, Joker's whole uh, mission in that movie was very you know, kind of am, you know ambiguous and kind of shifty. But the ba- basic idea was is that he was trying to get Bruce Wayne slash Batman to betray his values and to corrupt him or mm-hmm. prove that he can be corrupted by his own choices. Ultimately, Batman Bruce doesn't make those choices, and as like the Joker says to him at the end, "You really are incorruptible, aren't you?" But at the end, though. Batman is corrupted. The cultural symbol of Batman now shifts and becomes um, something that it's never supposed to be. It is no longer a symbol of hope, perseverance, justice. It's now a symbol of betrayal, of of corruption. And uh, so, yeah, I would say that Batman does not win. Well, and then, and then, of course, we we get around to this movie. I mean, Bane is dispatched with a missile to the face by Catwoman. Um, and, uh, you know, even, uh, I mean, I, 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 I sort of forget, but I, I don't think he takes down Talia in the end, does he? Or... Talia, Talia succeeds in, 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 in stabbing him in the side. All great messiah heroes, of course, must get a lance to the side. <laughs> and, then, and then there is a chase, I believe. Talia is being chased by both Batman and Gordon, I believe. Gordon does something to the bomb. I'm not quite sure what it is. But I think ultimately in the end, Talia is responsible for driving her car off the side of the road and Mm -hmm. killing herself Mm -hmm. and putting Batman in this position where he must, like, you know, we think, sacrifice his life. Uh, But he never gets to, like, deliver the killing blow, the knockout punch. He never gets to, like, look the embodiment of evil in the face and take it down, you mm-hmm. know, like, and, 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 and say, and give us this sort of, like, narrative of good triumphs over evil, well, you know? Jeff, and, and Jeff uh, kind of, do, I, do, do I dare ask, do you think that uh, the Dark Knight cycle is intended to be a deconstruction of the superhero archetype? funny that you should say that, because, yes, I was kind of in my awkward, hammy way going (laughs) right back to that point, which is that it seems to me that these movies are, you know, like, it's interesting, like, like like affirming a lot of good things about Batman, but also kind of like poking at and criticizing the whole notion of some lone nut who becomes heavily armed and decides to force his moral view on on the world, even if that moral view is as humanistic or up with justice and up with people as Batman. But like this, you know, it's, we we thank you for helping us defeat our, these, these villains that want to destroy us. But at the end of the day, 
it's interesting that the movies never let this kind of hero be the one that triumphs and vanquishes evil. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and this is why I think maybe The Dark Knight holds up much better on rewatchings than than I think Dark Knight Rises will, because one of the best things about Dark Knight is that it introduces Harvey Dent as this character who, you know, is very heroic in a very different way from Batman. I mean, we sort of see that he works within the system. I mean, I, I almost, uh, I'm sort of like, I, I'm reminded of old uh, old issues of, of The Punisher, which, you know, there's a character who's even way more outside of the system than Batman was, and sometimes they would sort of set him up in contrast to a policeman or, or some other figure who sort of works within the system as, as this almost kind of positive image of maybe we don't need a vigilante. Maybe what we need is someone who is incorruptible, who can sort of work within our system of law and order. And of course, the the, the great thing about The Dark Knight is that despite what happens to Harvey Dent, it, it doesn't seem as if he's necessarily intended to be a villainous figure in the end. I mean, like, th- th- there's even, like, the end of the movie where they wind up kind of anointing him as a, as a martyr, as an example of what someone who works within the system of law and order can do. The interesting thing is that I don't really feel like there was that character in this movie, and it may just be because... You know, by the time Bane takes over Gotham, we're at this point where the policemen are almost kind of their own sort of like renegade army facing off against Bane's anarchists. And, you know, there really isn't anyone left who can, there's no system left to work within. But I'm sort of intrigued by the fact that, to what you're saying, being a vigilante is never the best possible thing you can be. Um, Right, right, yeah. I I think that to, 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 to one of the things that you're saying is that you know, and to what we're talking about now, we must be clear, this is always Batman's hope, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, his whole mission was to be a catalyst for change in Gotham. His whole hope was that his example uh, would inspire people, you know, high and low in, 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 in Gotham's social strata to sort of, you know, choose the good, to invest in the city, invest in each other, take back the city um, and, uh, and, and, and redeem a lot of things that had, had, had fallen and become corrupt, notions of justice and fairness and equality and, and all these things. So to some degree, like there is a sort of like in, in, in a weird way, the way that rises ends in which it takes a group effort, Darren, <laughs> to like kick out people like Bane, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. contributions from Gordon and Catwoman and the police force and Blake. Um, uh, you know, let's not forget. Let's not forget about Matthew Modine, who uh, and, turned out to Matthew be Modine maybe very, right. Matthew Modine has a very interesting arc, which is very thematically important to the movie. Which is that we're presented with a guy who is like, you know, talk about a guy who doesn't want to die for anything. You know, like he's the head of the police force, right? He's the police commissioner, right? Yes. Or well, right. um, uh, he's. Uh, I think he's like like the the second in command to Gordon, if if I recall. Right. Correctly. Right. Yeah. But he's basically a coward, you know. Like and 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 he's kind of cynical, and he's like a a politicized like law, uh, crime fighter in, in 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 the in the legal structure of Gotham, and you know when things get scary, he wants to like hot, you know. He wants to hide away. He locks himself up in his house with his family, you know. Mm-hmm. But in the end. You know, like, there's this appeal made to, you know, suck it up and, like, 
and 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 become the you know the the kind of person you need to be and live up to your values and ideals. And he ends up going out there in the front lines, and and unfortunately he dies. But you know Matthew Modine. Matthew Matthew Modine, perhaps perhaps the last true American in in <laughs> in, in, in Gotham City. But the redemption of Matthew Modine, and then the redemption <laughs> of the character to go from being. Talk about self-sacrificing heroes, Darren. To go from a guy who's not willing to die for a cause and not willing to die for his fellow people and uh, and all that to, to to make the choice that he made at the end. This is the fulfillment, in some ways, an unfortunate way, but a fulfillment of what 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 Bruce wanted for his city. Okay, well, and that's that's all true. Uh, what my problem with the Modine character. And more generally, I think, with what you're getting at about the people of Gotham is that, for me, Jeff, I think the most exciting part of the movie and, and the part that, you know, Christopher Nolan, as, as, as much as I like him, in terms of being a, a visual stylist, I, 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 I don't think that's really where his, his talents lie. But there's one part of the movie that so completely stuck with me as I was watching it. I knew it was a scene that I wanted to watch again and again. It's when Bane, I, I, I believe it's, it's when he's right outside of the prison and the camera is sort of like circling around him as he's giving this speech that you know this revolutionary you know could be Fidel Castro talking on the streets of Havana um, and then that's intercut with all these sequences of you know the wealthy of Gotham you know being, being pillaged and looted and sent out on the street and it sort of felt to me like we were going to this really interesting place with the movie where we were gonna see not just Bane as this kind of vision of, of, you know, anarchy and evil, but see how he could actually inspire the people of Gotham in, in his direction, the same way that Batman tries to inspire the people of Gotham in his direction. And I, I think it's really the biggest failing of the movie for me is that after that moment, the people of Gotham kind of disappear. I mean, we're sort of left with this vision of Gotham under occupation where the streets are essentially empty except for, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt keeping track of Bane's tanks and then down in the sewers, the policemen are sort of, you know, living for months on end without any sunlight. And it feels to me like... You know, I, I only say this because the movie, in some respects, is very similar to the Batman story arc, No Man's Land, which was this sort of fantastic late 90s sequence where an earthquake hits Gotham and it's declared a no man's land by the federal government. And you sort of see this fantastic Lord of the Flies situation where people sort of start following different warlords and stuff like that. And it just feels to me like the movie was veering in a direction where Batman's vision of Gotham as a place that rises above would be complicated by the fact that, you know, everyday citizens, when they're in that situation, I, I think some of them would probably embrace the anarchy. And it feels weird to me that it, it, Gotham is sort of reduced in a way to Bane and his thugs versus the policemen and, and you know, the, the noble, redempted spirit of, of Matthew Modine. I, I don't know, it, it, it felt a little bit half-finished to me, that, that part of the movie. Well, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, like, I thought what, well, one of the things that was interesting was the implication for me that, yeah, Bane comes to town, blows up the football field, and then basically makes this declaration to the people of Gotham. People of Gotham, the city is yours. Like, <laughs> I'm empowering you. I am the agent of your blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> but, you know, but by the way, I have a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> And I will blow you all up. 
Jeff, 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 please do the rest of this podcast in your Tom Hardy as 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 Bane voice. I think that's Don't mandatory. Don't, Mr. Wayne. I expect you to die. Um, <laughs> look, I think, um, but my my takeaway about all of that is that um, the people of Gotham had the exact right attitude to Bane. Dude is scary. Like, <laughs> like, like, this guy isn't here to bring me like um, empowerment. He's not here to, you know, uh, you know, create a bold, great new society. The man is a monster. He does really, really evil things. I don't care what he's saying. I don't believe him. I don't trust him. Like, people don't do stuff like this, you know, like uh, to uh, empower me. They don't go and blow up a football game, <laughs> you know, and like, and all that. I mean, like, uh, I, I'm just saying... Uh, and so when you get to that scene at the end where he liberates the jail and all the people that were um, uh, rightly or wrongly imprisoned under the harsh, severe Patriot Act, or, I'm sorry, Dent Act, um, uh, um, are, are allowed to, to get free. And then we see the sacking of, of Gotham's rich. The implication for me there, Darren, was that this was not largely this sort of like mob violence was not being like driven by um, the people of Gotham, but rather the criminals that had sort of like joined Bane's army and probably some hanger-ons that uh, like, you know, uh, we never really get to know these people at all, so it's probably wrong to characterize them. But I got the sense that that the movie was trying to imply to me that no good, decent, um, or and or middle class um, person <laughs> would ever do this. <laughs> I, I mean that very sarcastically. Um, but um, only uh, only 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 the proletariat who live in, in in the sewers would ever dare to do this. Us 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 fine upstanding middle class Matthew Modines of the world. You know we just we just retreat to our to our apartments for a while and wait wait out the occupation. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I mean. Like, so I, like, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I think it would have been more interesting kind of, you know, like, you know, you, you want the transmedia storytelling to kick in here and give us some comic books or some television shows or a whole other movie of, like, you know, stories from the occupation mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in which you kind of, like, see various different families or people and how they sort of, like, somehow survive. Right, right, right. Com- either... Coming to the CW this fall, Stories of the Gotham Occupation, a, 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 a charming new anthology series about uh, what went on while uh, Bane was was in charge. Right. You know, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I think what you're saying is valid, Jeff. This, 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 this may just be something, something that's come up in this podcast before where I, I reveal myself as a desperately cynical uh, person and uh, I, I, I sort of feel like, you know, I, w- w- without even the sort of acknowledgement that there could be a, a person in Gotham who was a fundamentally normal human being who nevertheless kind of got caught up in this whole kind of notion of a, of a class revolution and of a revolution yeah. against the elites. It, it feels to me like it was, it was missing from the movie. I do want to say, though, to our listeners, you know, as I'm complaining about this, this is not really a, a complaint that I could have about any other blockbuster this summer. I mean, I, I think that what's, what's fun about, you know, like, you know, I, I, I didn't exactly watch 
walk out of The Amazing Spider-Man feeling like, you know, it's it's portrayal of, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, lifestyle of Queens was somehow a betrayal of everything that uh, Thomas Jefferson talked about or anything. I, I think that what's fun about this movie, which which we're kind of getting into, Jeff, is that it, it, it engages in a lot of these ideas. And at that point... The question kind of becomes, well, you know, what does it do with them? And, and does it engage with them in a way that is ultimately meaningful? Yeah. What I hear you saying is, you know, through Bain um, and, and, and also by tackling the issue of Bruce Wayne as billionaire, this movie gets to tap uh, a lot of sort of very, you know, uh, contemporary conversations about issues of economic unfairness and and all these things, uh, you know, that are embodied by, say, um, the, the, the superficial kind of notion of, like, the Occupy movement, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All of these ideas and notions of class warfare are sort of, like, brought into this movie in a really provocative and intriguing way. And then they're just kind of orphaned. They're kind of abandoned. And they're not fully developed as the movie ultimately moves into resolution mode, in which Bain and 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 and, and Talia are, re- are are revealed, and we realize that they're just very much like products of this Batman reality. They don't necessarily have a lot uh, in common with ours uh, beyond emotional issues and stuff like that. Um, and so these ideas are are sort of like stranded out there, fun to think about, fun to parse, but ultimately it's hard to know what it all means. The one thing I think we should be uh, I'd like to say, and I bet you would like to, um, uh, I, I'm just wondering what you thought, think about it, is that, is that ultimately Bain is a really poor representative of these very real issues in the world, you know, and I, I, I would hate that there's any sort of a reading of this movie in which, like, I, I don't think this is even Christopher Nolan's point, you know, which is that, um, uh, that that the issues that he rep- that that he seemed to represent are as loathsome as Bane, or that the people who agitate and activate are agitated and and, and champion uh, these these ideas and this idealism have anything in common with Bane. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I I don't want to malign the movement. No, yeah, I think no, no. I think that you're exactly right. I mean, I, I think that as much as in the lead up to this movie and in this sort of tendency to politicize a movie that is as maybe openly topical as this movie is, there is this sort of sense of oh yeah, is Bane is he Occupy Wall Street? There's you know the scene in the the stock market that seems to indicate that is is, is this is this a Tea Party thing? Is it? I I think that if if there's any ultimate point to all of that. Uh, it's it's a point that you, you know I, I maybe sort of agree with. It's the fact that nope, in the end, he's actually the puppet of another member of of the one percent, and it, it's sort of yeah. and and you know as as muddled as that is, I do sort of wonder if that is not maybe a more true statement than any movie would necessarily be willing to get into. That even this sort of demagogue who is draped in so many of the kind of aesthetics of twentieth century revolutionaries, even he is you know working for slash in love with this perfect inversion of Bruce Wayne. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I, um, you, you know, Jeff, we've, we, we, we've, we talked so much about the, the kind of deeper themes of this movie and how it relates to politics and how it relates to superheroism and, and all of that. I guess with, with just our, our last few minutes here, I was wondering if there's anything else that, you know, you sort of really liked about the movie that didn't necessarily fit into any of that. I mean, I, I know that for me, 
I was so impressed by almost everything that Anne Hathaway did in the movie that, if anything, I sort of wished there could have been more of her and less of le, le, more her, less Talia, less Bane, less Modine. What did, what did you think? Yeah, I was really impressed with Anne Hathaway. I think that she was really great. I've always really liked her, and I was really surprised to hear in the in the lead up to the movie that there was a lot of skepticism about whether or not she could pull off this part. I mean, clearly no one saw her terrific turn as a, as a kick-ass spy and get smart. I did. Um, sorry. Why aren't you laughing at that? <laughs> I, I, I kind of like get smart, honestly. Oh, I, totally. I, 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 no, no, that was... That was I, I'm, I'm actually really serious. But That was a silence of pure agreement, Jeff. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Like, no, she's, like, really good in that, and, like, and, and I thought she was terrific here, and... Um, I mean, the performances up and down are almost impeccable. I mean, I think that Christian Bale is a, is a, is was great. I mean, it, he gets ignored so much in these movies because, you know, it, it because I think in large part, you know, you know, because of the, you know, especially in the Dark Knight, when you have something like Heath Ledger come along and just like. And like give give an all timer there that just sort of transcends the movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, Christopher Nolan has always talked about the influence of the Bond films, and in these films, after Batman Begins, very much have the feel of you know the villains get to have all the fun. You know, I mean, like right. Christian, but, Christian Bale's role is to be sort of solid in, in in some respects, and it's easy to sort of overlook what he's doing there. But but yeah, you know, I mean, like I think that it's also a function of the fact that the re- the reason why Bale gets lost is that at the end. You know, in in the end, these movies are just so Christopher Nolan. I mean, they they rise and fall on this 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 feeling that he generates that you are in the hands of a storyteller and with a very a voice, uh, distinctive style and just this, this this forceful style. And you know, it, they start and they just go and they uh, they and and and. And everything kind of gets swept up in it and becomes part of it. And you feel like that, you know, it's it's just everything is an element of the Christopher Nolan-ness of it all, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh. m- more so than ever with this movie. I remember, um, one of, I, I, I may have mentioned this to you uh, in last week's podcast, but one of the smartest things I ever heard about The Dark Knight is that most movies have three acts and that movie had six acts. I think The Dark Knight Rises may have like nine or ten. I'm, I'm still sort of working on counting them up, but it almost has the feel of a season of television that was then compressed into nearly three-hour movie form, which... Uh. Oh, which, totally. Which, yeah. which, which, which is still sort of moving in this perpetual motion machine at, at the end of the movie. You know, it's uh, there's there's a real, just sort of kinetic. Uh, um, this this sense of being pulled along when Christopher Nolan is really like at his best that it's it's hard to think of another blockbuster filmmaker who's as effective at, at that as as he is. I mean, there are sequences in the movie that are just stunning, and I. I like I just love. Uh, not everyone does. I, I must like. I, not everyone loves the way his compositions and his and and, and all that and, and and the vibe of it all. I just love the. There's something about his movies that, for me, the 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 defining kind of like vibe of 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 these movies is best summarized by like one of the earliest scenes in The Dark Knight where you're just kind of like pushing through the city and you're pushing in on that big glass building and that window plane blows out. But the Zimmer score, which is this, this intense buzzing, you just kind of feel this dread 
Uh, and then that wonderful shot at the end of The Dark Knight with the Joker hanging upside down, and then he tilts the camera. So he looks right side up, but he's swaying, and, and the, the hair, his hair is like, like standing on end, and he's giving that speech. I, he just finds these ominous and flat, static, yet alive with some kind of sinister uh, dread and energy in it. I just, I just, I, I love it. And Rises specifically, come on, like, we don't talk about this sequence enough these days because we've seen it before. But the whole airplane thing in the beginning was just outrageous. <laughs> I mean, and outrageously awesome. Like, wow. I mean, like, it was like, are you, I mean, it's so spectacular. It's just kind of like, I don't know what to do with it. It just kind of leaves you there kind of like just awestruck by the, 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 the terrible spectacle of it all. You it, know? It, it, it was fantastic. You know, I, I am a lot more suspicious of Nolan's kind of visual talents than I think you are. I, I, I think that, you know, one of the maybe, one of the reasons that when I first walked out of the movie, I sort of thought that I didn't like it that much was that it's a three hour long movie and what happens in it is so interesting. I, I was hard pressed to really remember any visuals that stuck out at me, you know? We're, we're I, talking agree. About, I agree, I agree. But, but at the same time though, I, I, I know for a fact, I think there's this sort of, this kind of consensus building online in film critic circles that Nolan is just flat out not a very talented director in so far as you know, shot by shot, it doesn't often look that interesting. The, the the precise mise en scène, to use a horrible film studies term, you know, just just the way people are set up on screen is not that good. But what I sort of I, I found myself over the course of Rises developing a sort of grudging respect for it. I mean, I, I think he's talked before about the fact that, you know, he, he really doesn't want to use digital effects. He's a great sort of, you know, he, he's very devoted to almost the kind of 80s action style of, where, you know, we show the explosion and, you know, all practical stunt work and stuff like that. And there's, there's a, a sort of very brutal, uh, not quite reality, but just sort of, sort of uh, frankly, there's just a, a, a real brutishness to how he makes movies that works so interestingly with how layered and how sort of precise his screenplays are written. And when he has a scene like that first airplane scene, I mean, I, I may have some quibbles as a film fan with the 180 degree rule and this and that, but there's just like, I mean, boy, watching it in IMAX, you can you just feel like, there's this real sense of he's he's putting aside the sort of intellectual side of the movie for a second and just wants to wow you, you know? And I, I really, I, I think there's, there's a real-life showmanship to how he makes movies that, to me, feels so much more interesting than the vast array of digital action movies that look perfect shot by shot but feel very empty to me, you know? Like... I, yeah. I I I think I, I think it's easy to overlook the sort of the sort of raw brutal power of Christopher Nolan's filmmaking. <laughs> no, I, I I don't I, I I agree with a lot a, a, a lot of what you said. I disagree with the the the, the beginning part of it all um, uh, of what you said mo mostly because I like I I, I reject the term mizzen scene. <laughs> it makes me miserable. Um, but, uh, just kidding. But no, I, because I just have a lot more. Uh, I, I because I'm a a, a a cold like fish. I guess like um, I love the way he frames things. I think that I think he he produces amazing shots. Um, I don't know if, how how many of them are 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 in the are, are in rises. I will say 
that compared to some of his other films, like, yeah, I, I agree. I don't know if it left me with images as haunting and as memorable um, as some of his other movies. That said, I I've, I've respect his his directing and, and, and all that stuff that you said. I think a lot more, and I like it a lot more than a lot of other people, too. The, the famous sort of, like, knock on him that he doesn't know how to direct action and especially the scene in dark Knight that gets deconstructed so often the whole the car chase scene which apparently is some huge affront to film language <laughs> uh, and, and 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 is 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 just horrible 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 and proof that he's some kind of hack well that like like I, I didn't like that scene either, but it has absolutely nothing to do with those things, comma, which no one notices in the moment. Period. I'm just really emphatic about that. Like the, I didn't, I never liked that scene just because there is. It reminded me of the Bane and Batman fight in in Rises, which is that I think that sometimes the, 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 one of my some of my least favorite parts of Nolan Batman movies is when this feeling where he has to like do the thing that's required of him because it's a superhero movie. So now there must be a fight, and now there must be a chase, and when these things happen, and when he fe- when he sort of like gives himself over to these conventions, I think they fall flat mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. personality because I kind of feel like he resents it. Um, so I think you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I think that Nolan, if he had his druthers, if only he could find those darn druthers, Jeff, um, so th- we're always losing our druthers here. Uh, I, I, I think that he really lives for scenes that are people talking in a room and what they're saying is very interesting. I think that's really where his his talents lie. Certainly so much of Memento and, and Inception and, and the Prestige are just these great sort of dialogue sequences where what's being said and how it's filmed feels very tense. And, you and know, the construction of, of the linear narrative, too, is always something that he's really yeah. interested in and is not able to play with as much as he would like to in these Batman movies. I mean, one of my favorite quotes that he's that he ever said when I interviewed him was that he was always trying to, you know, escape the tyranny of the linear of 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 of, of oh, and now I'm forgetting the thing, but the but the linear strip of film, he's always trying to get beyond that. And Inception is just an amazing example of that mm-hmm. where he, he, he finds ways to, to and, and Memento as well. But talk about a movie that, like, I mean, like, I mean, Inception is one of my favorite films in recent years, and it's and and it, and it kind of is suffused with all things I love about Nolan, which includes a lot of things that people hate about Nolan. But I, like, <laughs> but 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 they but they include just tons the way that he plays with the linear narrative of it all uh, in a non. Uh, blah blah blah, non-linear narrative. Blah blah blah, linear narrative. Blah blah blah, mise en scène. We're really, we're really getting into like dense, you know, pseudo pseudo philosophical stuff here. But the yeah. shot, the <laughs> shot that he produces in in uh, in, in Inception, just the, the the visuals. I mean, mm-hmm. are haunting. They're amazing. They're huge. They're 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 scary. Cool. They are. Uh, will, now, I will leave off for uh, for a later date a uh, a uh, conversation about why I, I think Justin Lin is actually a, a much better director than Christopher Nolan. Justin Lin, of course, maker of the last three Fast and Furious movies. But I, I don't want to get into that right now, Jeff, uh, just because I, I worry that then we'll wind up discussing the sociopolitics of Fast Five. Um, what I do want to do, uh, as we've, we've now set a new record, appropriately enough, for the length of this podcast, um, do you have any sort of quick final thoughts about 
uh, the Dark Knight trilogy in general, or where you'd like to see this franchise go, or even uh, anything that we haven't discussed yet with regards to Dark Knight Rises? Well, I mean, look, if you've listened to this podcast and you've made it this far, you've heard a lot of complaining about this movie. But you know what? Like, I think this is one of the most successful franchises, the trilogies I've, I've, I've ever seen. Um, I, I, I appreciate it for all of its messiness. Uh, it's, it's, it's just wonderful to think about, even in all of its flaws. Um, and I think that it's, it's still very powerful, even if, I mean, I think Rises is a very good movie, in my opinion, mm-hmm. but not as good as The Dark Knight. And I think that Batman Begins is sort of like get, gaining some steam as like the most likable of the Batman movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, by comparison, it's pretty enjoyable. Um, and, uh, but I, I just think it's, it's just really successful and I will, I will miss no one working in this genre. I really look forward to seeing him move on in, into other things. Um, I want to see his next inception esque kind of original, uh, screenplay, and I, I'm with you. I would like to see him. T- like, um, it, it, I don't know if he's still going to make his Howard Hughes movie. I mean, there was talk that maybe The Aviator essentially subverted all of that. Um, but I think that I want to see kind of like uh, Nolan tackle some big character-driven historical drama. Um, mm-hmm. I think he would. I think that. He, I think that would be great. Um, Absolutely. Where, I, where do I want Batman to go from here? You know, I think that, um, and I don't mean this in any way that's, I don't want this to be interpreted as a criticism of Nolan's interpretation. Jeff Jensen Uh, is is, is criticizing Nolan, everyone. Here it is. Here it comes. The moment we've all been waiting for. What I'm saying is, I've seen the gritty, realistic metaphor for the way the world is kind of thing. Um, I've seen that the troubled schizoid Bruce Wayne kind of like character played out in this franchise and, and, and the Burton Schumacher movies too. I, I would like to see some attempt to uh, put on screen the Dark Knight detective. You know, we've gotten the brutal rubber-suited warrior um, the gadget guy, you know, um, the, but I want to see the Sherlock Holmes in a costume kind of guy. And I, and I want to see the guy that also sort of how make and has fun with, with, with the playboy billionaire thing. Uh, one of my favorite Batman storylines ever is from the seventies. Um, stories written by Steve Englehart and drawn by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. And um, they kind of like, I've always, they were a little bit lighter, but still kind of like dark and, and mysterious. And uh, I, I like to see someone come along and, and maybe have just a little more fun with Batman. I think that you can have a little more fun with Batman, but not be so caught up in the realism of it all and uh, and not be so brooding and bleak with I, it. I, I absolutely could not agree more. You know, I, I think that Christopher Nolan very much traffics in the cinema of the furrowed brow, and uh, as much as I think that that has been such a defining and interesting aspect of this franchise, I think that the biggest failing of contemporary Batman fandom is this sense that this is the definitive way to do Batman. You know, this sort of Frank Miller, year one influenced gritty realism. 
criticism. I, I think that, you know, Grant Morrison has done such a good job in the last few years with his work of almost rescuing the older, more fun, more cosmic, more more Robin-y Batman. And uh, I, I do think that there is something so wonderfully twisted even when you're doing that version of Batman. You know, you sort of can't help but be a little bit twisted, even in a very fun way, when you're dealing with the rogues gallery that he has and all these villains who all seem to sort of exemplify some form of psychological deficiency. So I, I, I would love to see someone with a very distinctive take on on the hero come out. You know, I'd, I, I'd, I'd be down for, for him to hang out with Robin again. I, I think that... Christopher Nolan's great success was to rescue Batman from the, the, the sheer head-thumping campiness of Batman and Robin. But I do think that it, it's time to maybe, to maybe go back and say, like, hey, like, maybe there's room for a Poison Ivy or a Mr. Freeze. I mean, geez, like, uh, I, I remember growing up watching the Batman animated series. Everyone still talks about the Mr. Freeze episode as one of the, you know, one of the great sort of episodes of, of you know, kids television and you know that's that's definitely not a character that, w- that would have ever fit into Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight but yeah. um, you know and, and oh, oh sorry go ahead no, Jeff. I, was, I, just, I definitely want you to finish out your thought but I just want to interject real quick and say I think that that's one of you know what's interesting about Batman is is that and I think that Nolan wrestled with this too because he's ultimately so quote-unquote real-world based um, he's a superhero that that forces any sort of like thoughtful, reasonable like storyteller to confront the fact that this is just kind of comic book stuff is just kind of ridiculous, right? Um, and and there's something about Superman or other sort of super powered superheroes where you could kind of like buy into them and their worlds a little more easily because you know they they live in sort of like heightened realities and it's all like fantasy, you know. Mm-hmm. But Batman is a vigilante. And he's a guy in a suit with like a utility belt and a cool car, um, and 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 there's something about it that kind of like fries the grid. I think of most filmmakers, especially <laughs> ones that are not kind of like steeped in the geek of it all, mm-hmm. um, that like like they're confronted with the fact of like like I that 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 you know it, it you either kind of go. We've seen really, really campy, and we've seen really, really serious, and we've seen gothic, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that all of these are responses, in a way, to filmmakers trying to make some sense of the conundrum that Batman presents you with, which is that, like, how can I take this guy seriously? How can I make him real? Because he seems to beg that kind of um, uh, creative tension, you yep, know? yep. So what we're saying, Jeff, is that we're really excited for Dwayne The Rock Johnson to play Batman in the next movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger will play uh, Alfred, and Vin Diesel will play the Joker. Boom. Done. Take it, Hollywood. Um, And Darren French's unending quest to remake Hollywood in the image of Fast and Furious. (laughs) And G.I. Joe. 
retaliation continues. The ne the never ending battle continues. Um, Jeff, uh, I think that at, at this point we're approaching the the ninety minute mark. Uh, listeners, you 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 could have watched Annie Hall, but instead you stuck with us. So thank you. Uh, please please tell us all of your ideas in the comments. I don't think we have a a, a word limit, but but if we do, then please feel free to leave multiples. It, it, it's a fun movie to talk about. I think that what Jeff said was completely true. Its flaws only make it greater in some ways, because where's the fun in a, in a totally flawless movie? The flaws make it fun to talk about. Exactly. And, and, like, and I don't know, I mean, and, and the goodness of it all, the, 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 the things that it does right, uh, make it fun to talk about. Um, but I just, I don't, you know, I don't really know many blockbusters that invite this kind of conversation. I think that's worth something. Well, uh, just wait for the Battleship DVD release, Jeff. That's going to be our, uh, that'll be our, our three-hour-long podcast. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> listeners, uh, we will be back uh, next week. Uh, no, we won't. We will not be back next week, listeners. We I've be just been informed. We'll be on vacation. <laughs> Jeff Jensen will be on vacation next week. Uh, a a, a well-deserved vacation after a lot of Dark Knight Rises-related stuff. But uh, please check back with us. Feel free to have a conversation with someone else. I may. Uh, I may just actually bring in Keith Staskowitz, but, 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 but have him imitate you, Jeff. And oh, that'd be cool. The, 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 the extra twist will be that he'll be imitating you, imitating Bane. So oh, it's going nice. to be a very conceptual podcast. So listeners, look forward to not listening to that next week. But uh, uh, thanks again for listening. As always, I'm Darren Franich. I'm Jeff Jensen. Bye, everybody.